This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, high rates of kidney disease and diabetes have been found in some Polynesian communities in Australia. This can be related to a variety of things, sort of social determinants, um, challenges with health service delivery and dietary changes, particularly around transitioning to a Western diet. We speak to the journalist behind the documentary looking at corruption in the carbon credit market. And all that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, a state of emergency is in place for parts of Auckland as Cyclone Gabrielle lashes New Zealand's coast. Homes are being evacuated as flooding and gale force winds continue to hit communities. It's the second major weather event to hit Auckland and surrounding areas in just a few weeks, with last month's floods destroying homes and leaving four dead. Joining me now is Pacific Community Leader Esther Tufilau from Auckland. She's with the ASA Foundation Trust, or ASA Foundation Trust, a small community charity. Good morning to you, Esther. Yes, kia ora, talofalava, and good morning to you, Priyanka. Um, so can you tell us, Esther, what's the situation there right now? Well, it's uh, just a few minutes ago, it's actually, we've, uh, they've called a national state of emergency. It's now been declared. So okay. um, that's, um, yeah, so that was just uh, minutes ago. So uh, with that, obviously, that's right throughout the country. You know, there's over 10 districts and regions remain under the state of emergency. So a lot has happened overnight, um, and it's definitely in the red. You know, strong red rains are still continuing and the winds, but uh, a lot of the various different um, areas. So major, major concerns, a lot of work out with the firefighters, police, the civil defence overnight, the night has been happening with all the volunteers. So um, it's pretty crazy here in New Zealand. Yes, yes. Well, thank you for, for speaking to us because I, I think, I believe you're in Auckland, which is sort of the centre stage in a lot of areas in that area um, in, in Auckland or surrounding Auckland were the first ones to be declared states of emergency. Um, so what are you seeing outside your window there, window there Esther? I outside my window, I just see the strong winds. Mm. So I'm actually quite uh, blessed to have, uh, you know, no flooding or puddles or anything. And but what I see on the television and on um, social media, it's uh, unfortunate, um, you know, for those families that are helping. But it's good to see a lot of the people working um, working together um, in the neighbourhoods and we, where we can really. Mm. So um, as um, CEO of ASA Foundation, we're trying to wrap around to those that are actually reaching out, not only for um, information and direction on where to go, where some of the providers, where some of the centres they can go um, to seek assistance, but also the struggle of um, families needing food. So there's the continuation and everyone's just wrapping around each other. and It's just wonderful to see. But I think at the end of the day is actually where, for our Pacific people, is where they can go and seek those help. So uh, we try to put out with the various centres in Mangere, there's the Leisure Centre um, in Tupuk and Otara, Papakura, all in, in these areas, and um, just 
social media, getting out to the main churches where the help, where they can seek and the closest, um, you know, centres for them. Um, besides, because I know the, the firefighters and the police have just been bombarded with all the cause, especially some areas throughout not only Auckland, but um, in Hawke's Bay where communications has actually now uh, over, uh, you know, power has been cut. Mm. So it's pretty crazy right, right throughout. We actually have two firefighters in Murawai that are, are missing in action. So there is a search for them mm. as when they were trying to rescue. So um, it, it's pretty much right across. And I guess that's the call that's just happened is it's now in state of emergency. Yes, yes, and and to be be beware and and um, take precautions if you are in some of those um, hard hit areas. Um, I know this is still an emergency situation there, Esther. But overnight, have you heard from any of your family or, or community members there? Are, are there people in, in difficult situations? There, um, yes, and what we actually uh, advise them, we directed them to where the the uh, evacuation centres are. Mm. And I said, that's what the assistant there for. But on the other hand, with some of our Pacific family, um, you know, they want to, they, they don't want to go to the centres. They are at their homes. They don't want to leave their homes. They want to deal with the problems and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, it's also trying to educate them, like the services there, whether it's your pride or not, but there is assistance for them. Um, but we find that a lot of them also do want, don't want to leave their homes, don't want to leave their belongings and so forth. So that's also, um, on the other hand, what we're actually finding with some of our Pacific people here. Mm. And, and speaking of that, um, Esther, because we just a couple of weeks ago were speaking to people um, from the Pacifica community about the flooding that hit, and they were saying that a lot of um, people, community members, were the ones that were hardest hit in some of the most vulnerable areas there in Auckland. What's it like this time around? Are you seeing the same sort of communities, the same families being hit with this cyclone? Pretty much it is the same families, and I think it's the houses that they actually live in, but uh, it's trying to encourage them to know that they're not alone. There is help available, and also the reason, because I know that some providers actually, we saw firsthand, they try to split the families up, and went, cannot split a family up, they need to, you know, be together, but also, you know, the... The accommodation, it's just um, air beds, uh, mattresses, and so it's trying to make do with what's there. Um, if it was the, you know, it's just like watching a movie. Mm. And so we, we were going to say to, you know, tell the people you have to come out because you're in danger. It's not safe because at the end of the day, really, you know, it's about their safety that comes first. That's the, the most important thing. And if their homes are not safe, they do need to come out and you know, uh, to the evacuation centre until we actually can assist them with, you know, further further. And has it been difficult, Esther? I mean, people, you said the same families that went through the floods just a few weeks ago, now dealing with the cyclone. Is it is it difficult for them to be hit? I'm sure they were picking up the pieces um, now to have this other thing um, happen to them. I mean, you you must just feel for for them, right? 
Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, some of them haven't um, gone back to their homes. I know one family um, out in West Auckland, um, they, because the house is not livable, mm. so they're still at the um, vacuum centre from the first event and they're still there, so it's very difficult. And also, you know, with the shortage of accommodation um, need out there, so there's, it's just trying to deal with the best thing. This is where we have relatives wrap around and say, um, you know, like I've actually opened my home um, out, out to a few people that have come through um, until they're on their feet and then they can, you know, uh, refer them um, or onto the, another family. But it's just acting, um, the act of kindness and when, when needed. So I think that's the most important thing is do the best that we can uh, we can for these families. Yes, yes. And, and I guess in time, when times are tough like this, you do see that community spirit come through and, and everyone, uh, rallying around. But I mean, Esther, how is it for you? You're, you're part of this, uh, Surf Foundation Trust, a, a charity to help vulnerable people. Um, to have two emergencies, massive weather events like this, um, how's it been for the resources of your charity and you yourself? How have you been faring? <laughs> Well, yes, we're a small, um, humble um, ASA Foundation, yeah, a, a South Auckland charity. We're not government funded, so we're not a provider, but we have a lot of generous people when we do reach out and uh, for assistance. We do have a lot of people uh, coming to, to our core. And, uh, you know, the biggest need was like blankets and towels and a lot of the cleaning products. So some of our other partners like Kiwi Harvest that we in partnership with, um, they came and gave pallets of cleaning products. So this actually goes a long way, uh, goes a long way. So we're very thankful for the people that do come to our calling. We would like more, but I know that we try and do, besides helping them, but also direct them at the same time to the providers that uh, do get get um, funding to provide and assist our uh, Pacific people. So um, that's what it's uh, what we try and do from our end. Yes, well, it's a good, good to hear you in, in high spirits. Well, considering the situation there, Esther, um, I wanted mm. to ask you because you were talking about how, how some um, families don't want to leave their house and it's, they're finding it difficult to, um, to get them out and to evacuate. And I know during the previ- previous floods, there was some concern around how the emergency information was getting out to people, um, some families not knowing that they needed to evacuate, mm. the access to information in their own languages not being there. What, what was the case this time? Do you feel like families were better prepared? Well, um, some families that did go forward um, to to the providers and so forth, and these are, are working class families, and what they actually found um, and what came back is that they didn't qualify for the assistance. Mm. They didn't qualify. So uh, where the other families that may be um, on social welfare, care and so forth, so it had, it that was an advantage to them. But for the working class, they said, oh, we didn't qualify. So where do those people go? So that's also something that the system needs to have a look at, um, is that everyone right across do, do actually qualify um, because a lot of bedding and everything, um, uh, and I've seen it firsthand, we, um, that are needing 
mm. are needing um, all of that. Um, and I know that one family, they just pulled out all the mattress because the flood came down the driveway right into the house. So they tried to get all, all the mattresses out to try and stop it. So, oh. and, and they and they all work. And so when they went to ask for assistance, they said, oh, they were told they didn't qualify. So that was quite oh. sad. Uh, so we this is where us sort of wraps around and try and get some donors, some call-outs where people see our posts. And, and so we've delivered a few, but I know there's a lot more that's needed. But how do others do qualify? Um, but also uh, for our Pacific, you know, the help is there, especially those that are, may not have insurance. So we have to, you know, and and this is a real lesson uh, for everyone uh, of New Zealand to actually learn from this. And, and, you know, the struggle is real. Climate change is real. And so what, what can we do and what changes can we do individually as a community, as a society to, to make a difference moving forward? Yes, yes. Well, yes, to see two of them together. I mean, is climate change sort of front of mind? Is that what people are, are putting this down to? Um, well, the, the beginning to, to see that, it's something that was never talked about, but, you know, um, and what, what we see and what people see on social media, on television, they go by that. So I think it's also moving forward is to actually learn more about this mm-hmm. and even how we, you know, with our rubbish and recycle and everything, but it's actually um, – Preparing your families for uh, devastations as such as these emergency, whether it's earthquake, whether it's cyclone, to make sure that they are prepared, they know what their exits are, where they're going to go, know where the help is, and just work together as a nation. Because sometimes if the government turns around and say, well, the Pacific are not needing because they're not coming forward, they might strip it away. So mm. it's that fine line and also to educate that's that's the help you qualify for that, but to also ensure that others, uh, right across the board, do get the assistance that they do need, and not be told that they don't qualify because they get paid too much and they can't give blah blah blah. So yes, yes, that's yes. a bit of that. Uh, There's a lot of work ahead of you today, and <laughs> and for the weeks ahead, Esther. Um, what's your priority right now before we go? Well, my priority is pretty much to keep safe, use social media to actually reach, you know, it's like let the fingers do the walking, (laughs) Um, stay indoors and and just be on the alert for anyone that needs assistance because we can always, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump, just being wise, knowing what the weather forecasts in your particular area and just continue to um, to tune in um, to the professionals and and how it is and not, not going by what's on Facebook. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Esther, for joining us on Pacific Beat. All the best. Stay safe. Do stay indoors. And um, yes, all the best to you and your community. And thank you for the opportunity. Good thank, day. Thank you. That was Pacific Community Leader Esther Tofilao from Auckland. Uh, she's there with the ASA Foundation Trust, a small community charity, talking to us. Well, as she said, now it's been a national state of emergency that's been declared in New Zealand as a result of those devastating floods and gale force winds of um, Cyclone Gabrielle. Pacific Beat. You are listening to Pacific Beach. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan.
Some Polynesians in Australia have the highest rate of diabetes and kidney disease in the country, according to a new report. The report from the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare looked at health outcomes among the Australian population, including Pacific Islander communities, using data from the 2021 census. Dubrovka Volodez spoke to Claire Spark, the head of the population monitoring at the Institute, about the findings. Kidney disease, for people born in Tonga, they have the highest prevalence, um, followed by those born in the Cook Islands and then people born in Samoa, for example. Another example would be diabetes, um, where those born in Tonga, Samoa and the Cook Islands have the second, third and fourth highest prevalence, um, respectively, and those born in Fiji have the sixth highest prevalence. So these rates are, for example, in in comparison for diabetes, the Australian-born population has a prevalence of about 4%, um, whereas those born in Tonga have a prevalence of over 11%. And do we know why that is? Data are sort of descriptive in, in nature, so the report hasn't been designed just to sort of answer why some population groups have a higher prevalence of chronic conditions. Um, But we're not really surprised by these findings because we know that many of the Pacific nations have a high burden of chronic conditions or non-communicable disease. And this can be related to a variety of things, um, sort of social determinants, um, challenges with health service delivery and dietary changes, particularly around transitioning to a Western diet. We don't, and then also um, people might have um, sort of different migration and settlement experiences once they come to Australia, um, which may further exacerbate these conditions, particularly if they do experience inequalities or are unable to access health services. But we haven't actually looked at that in, in this report, but it's, we're not surprised at the findings. And what about cardiovascular health? Yeah, so for, so for heart disease, for example, Individuals who were born in Fiji or the Cook Islands or Tonga had the fifth, sixth and eighth highest prevalence in comparison to people born, which was around 43 4.2 and 4.1%. And in comparison, people born in Australia had a prevalence of 3.6%. And another type of cardiovascular disease, which is stroke, we found higher rates again in people born in the Cook Islands, Samoa and Tonga. Um, compared to the people born in in Australia and um, many other countries. And do these conditions usually appear clustered together? Absolutely. So um, we actually at the HW, we monitor these diseases together. Um, They're all vascular in nature. So the um, kidney disease, diabetes and heart disease. So um, they often cluster together um, and people can often be sort of multi-morbid, have one or two or three of these conditions at the same time. And I think you also looked at length of stay in Australia and the the effect that has on certain health conditions. What effect does length of stay have on these particular groups? We looked at time since arrival and prevalence of conditions, um, but we didn't look at time since arrival by different countries of birth in this report. We did look at time since arrival and pres- proficiency in spoken English, but yeah, we haven't connected it to necessarily to people who are from the Pacific. But in general, um, we found that you know people who'd been in Australia for more than 10 years um, had a higher prevalence of chronic conditions than people who had arrived less in less than 10 years. And with these findings, will it mean that specific groups will be targeted with specific health messaging and services going forward? Yeah, well, look, that's what we're hoping. So um, because 
we've been able to look in detail at these particular groups, which is something we're not normally able to do with our regular population health surveys because we can't, um, the numbers aren't large enough for us to draw insights from that. But these data came from um, the census, so it's a whole of population. So it will mean that, you know, um, local health service providers who know their their local populations and um, and policymakers will be able to um, use these data to, you know, target um, interventions. That was Esclair Spark from the Australian Institute of Health speaking there with Dubrovka Volodair. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Hope you're having a lovely Tuesday morning and lovely Valentine's Day if you do celebrate. I do not, so but my my Tuesday is still going well. Um, community members from a remote island of Arnhem Land in the tip of Australia are calling on the Northern Territory to investigate whether dust from one of the world's biggest manganese mines is threatening their health. Groot, Groot Islet, our locals living near the mine, have been worried for years about black dust that accumulates on cars and buildings. Now they're raising concerns about the tiny dust particles they can't see amid multiple incidents of soaring air pollution readings. Jane Barden with this report. Sylvia Tuck's hair and nails were tested by University of Queensland researchers a few years ago at her home on Groot Island. She was worried to hear the tests had found concerning high levels of heavy metals. I found that out through the news and by reading and I was quite shocked to see the results. She used to work at the South 32 Gemco Manganese mine near her home community of Anuragu. Now she's moved to Darwin, but she's worried about family still living beside the mine. I went to clean my mother's house and the dust is so thick, you have to do it every three weeks. People are using gurneys to clean their house. Like They're saying that they do monitor the dust, but we don't get told the results. Um, so I would like them to do more testing and what positive programs they can put in place to stop this dust. The health department says it hasn't investigated the issue since ABC reporting revealed high levels of metals found in samples from community members. The mining company South32 says it's helped to seal roads, changed mining schedules and it's using watering trucks to reduce dust. But other Groot Island community members are now asking new questions about whether particles too small to see are putting the community at risk. They're referred to as PM 2.5, very fine inhalable particles, 2.5 micrometres and smaller. In comparison, the average human hair is about 70 micrometres in diameter. If we look at this slide, it's showing that there's a plume of dust, 113 micrograms per cubic metre. David Nathan worked as a linguist on the island for several years until last year. Since 2020, he's been monitoring PM 2.5 levels via a weather forecasting and air quality website called Windy. And I was surprised one day looking at windy.com that there were these very strong plumes of this PM 2.5 emanating from Groot. The Australian safety standard limit for PM 2.5 is 25 micrograms. 
Mr Nathan showed the ABC PM 2.5 readings from January, February, March, September and October 2020 of between 94 and 273 micrograms and between 56 and 75 in December 2022. He's questioning whether there could be fine dust coming from the South 32 sheds in the community. What we actually observed was these pyramids of fine material in this shed uh, being turned over by uh, machines, perhaps to dry them out. That may be the source of fines, for example, being blown off conveyor belt. How do you hope um, government authorities respond to this? I think it would be good if the suitably qualified medical or environmental science people could liaise with the source of those images and to establish the credibility of the massive unsafe levels. The Windy website shows data produced by the European Union's Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service. Copernicus is used by the World Health Organisation to assess air quality related death rates and the Australian government uses it to monitor ozone holes. The director of the Copernicus service, Dr Vincent Henri Perk, says it reports data from governments and its satellite network. In areas like the NT, where they aren't provided with monitoring data from the ground, there is a margin for error and it can't tell exactly what the PM2.5 material is. Although bushfire-caused pollution can be differentiated by also monitoring for heat plumes. So it's a very difficult challenge uh, because in some parts of the world we have access to surface observation in in real time. That's the case for parts of Australia and near near big cities. Uh, But uh, in in the specific case of the Northern Territory, unfortunately, uh, I don't think we have uh, ground-based observations. The ABC sent the high PM2.5 readings from 2020 and 2022 to South 32 and asked it whether its monitoring had found different readings or other causes. It didn't dispute the readings or provide its own data. It said it had some PM2.5 and PM10 fine dust exceedances from its operation before July 2022 and none since, and it has, quote, worked hard to prevent further occurrences. The NT's industry department told the ABC no PM2.5 exceedances had been reported to it in the last three years. The ABC consulted three PM2.5 experts from different universities who all said readings this high, if correct, would be a concern. Claire Murphy, a professor of atmospheric chemistry from the University of Wollongong, says she's used satellite services like Copernicus and they do have a margin for error. The levels that you have shown me in these maps are actually quite worrying. Is it a level that would warrant some investigation by the NT government? Yeah, absolutely. So this satellite measure, it's uncertain in that when you look at that number and it says 165, it's not necessarily 165, but what you can see is it's really large. That's worrying. And so absolutely, to me, the absolute correct response to this is to get something on the ground to try and understand what's happening so it can be rectified. And that was Professor Claire Murphy from the University of Wollongong talking there to Jane Abaddon. It's a project that's supposed to prevent deforestation. Hidden from the world.
It's something that boils blood. We bought these carbon credits in good faith. Greenwashing the climate crisis. So the figures were fudged, made up. They're hot air. They're not worth the paper they're printed on. It is a form of neocolonialism. What you saw on the ground in PNG is being replicated globally. Four Corners, Tuesday, 8.15pm, PNG time, ABC Australia. that time of Pacific Beat where we find out what's making news around the region. And just before that, you heard an, uh, I guess, a promo, promotion or an ad for an upcoming documentary uh, about carbon credits in Papua New Guinea. We'll actually be speaking to the journalist behind that coming up in the show. But yes, first, let's get to news uh, around the region and to go through the headlines. We're joined by reporter Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. How are you going? Yes, good, thanks. Very excited to hear about this um, documentary on Four Corners. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll be speaking to the journalist. It went to air here in Australia last night. I didn't catch it, but it airs through um, uh, the Australian network today, I believe. Um, so very interesting. But some sadder news out of Fiji today um, because a child from Sydney has died while on a holiday there. Can you tell us what we know? Yeah, very sad news. So uh, an eight-year-old boy um, has died in what's being described as a tragic accident while holidaying uh, at the Club Wyndham uh, Denarau Island Resort. So uh, local authorities have released a statement saying um, uh, 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 an investigation has been launched into the cause of death, which is will yet to be confirmed. However, initial information actually suggests the child might have been electrocuted, um, but a post-mortem is going to have to confirm that. Mm, interesting. Um, so that's the police statement. What else do we know about the situation? Yeah, so not a lot. Information is slowly trickling through. Uh, the Guardian's written an article about it. Uh, they say that uh, the child was actually found by found by another guest lying motionless in a garden bed. Um, other than that, all we really know is the boy was of New Zealand descent, but like you said, living in Sydney. Uh, and investigations are still being carried out. So the resort themselves have expressed heartfelt condolences to the family uh, of the boy, uh, and the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs have confirmed they are providing assistance as well. Yes, it's an evolving situation um, reported there uh, in Suva, Fiji. Lude Movono is uh, following up on that, so do stay tuned to Radio Australia for any updates on that story. Um, and also, we were covering yesterday, or in fact, you covered, Kyle, um, the performance of Jordan Mailata in the Super Bowl yesterday. His team sadly lost. Mm. Um, but great. The Samoan Australian is a great um, I guess, step in his career there. Um, but there was another Samoan also taking part in rest- yesterday's Super Bowl action. And in fact, it, that makes three Samoans at the Super Bowl yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us the other two who were there? Yeah, that's right. Well, I guess firstly, yeah, condolences to uh, Jordan Mylata, but uh, congratulations to uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, uh, the American Samoan wide-receiver who plays oh, for uh, the right. Kansas City Chiefs, or American Samoan Heritage, I should say. But uh, yes, the third one, though, a really interesting um, story, that was uh, Paris Gobel, who was uh, on the stage for the halftime show. So this is reported by the Samoan Observer, and uh, Paris is a world-renowned dancer and choreographer who is of Samoan descent, and uh, and she performed alongside Rihanna yesterday uh, and choreographed it, from what I understand. Which, given that Rihanna was pregnant as well, like no small feat, given you know mm-hmm. limit limitations in that front, but it still looked yeah, it still looked fantastic. Yes, um, and we know uh, Paris, and now if Natalia Oletia is listening, I'm sure she'll be uh, she'll be correcting my pop knowledge because in the past I've said 
something about Paris's work and, and got it slightly wrong. But I understand he, she's worked with other artists. I won't may, name exactly them because hopefully you can fill us in, Kyle, but it's not Paris's first time rubbing shoulders with celebrities, is it? No, I think she's quite well known. Uh, I believe she's worked with uh, Justin Bieber in the past as well as Jennifer Lopez. Uh, often incorporates elements of her Samoan heritage uh, into her performance performances as well. So, uh, yeah, look, just a great example just from her and, and obviously the two the two, the two two guys in the Super Bowl as well. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, I put my Ability. Yeah, yeah, lovely to see. Um, and yes, great, great um, dance moves. I didn't catch the halftime show, but I'll have to look at it and check out Paris as well. <laughs> um, a star PNG rugby league player will miss out on the start of the NRL. Who is it? Yeah, that's right. So uh, Melbourne Storm centre Justin Olam. This is really oh, sad, dear. actually. So he's going to miss time due to a fractured arm. So uh, he suffered this injury uh, in the Storm's trial game against the Roosters in Geelong on Sunday while laying a tackle. Um, didn't look good at the time, and scans have confirmed uh, confirmed later that he'd actually suffered a forearm fracture and will need surgery. So he could be back by round five, however, um, and there's going to be you know still thousands of PNG PNG fans, unfortunately, saddened by that news. It's he's arguably the NRL's most popular man. Um, the sheer following he has in PNG oh, is yeah. it's quite unbelievable. I was reading about it today. Um, there's Facebook pages alone that have that actually have more than 240,000 uh, followers, fan pages, I mean, which is which is more than some clubs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Justin Olam is, yes, what, what's bigger than a star, a planet? He's mm. a whole solar system um, for many fans uh, in, in Papua New Guinea and, and around the world, really. Um, so, yeah, very sad news, but hopefully he'll be back on his feet um, and able to use his arm correctly very, very soon. <laughs> um, yeah, we do hope uh, the best for him. Um, thank you, Carl for those stories. Thank you, Priyanka. And that was Kyle Evans bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. But as I mentioned, coming up, we'll be speaking to the journalist behind that Four Corners documentary, looking at the carbon credit scheme and what Papua New Guinea has to do with it. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. When you're younger, you don't really take note of the significance of this ritual until you're much older. Then you realize that you're proud to be part of this ritual. So join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. Wednesdays at 3.30 p.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. In the race to curb the impacts of climate change, Australian businesses have been buying up carbon credits, sometimes from companies based in the Pacific. The credits promise to offset emissions as the companies selling them say they'll stop timber harvesting and protect forests. But when the ABC's Four Corners program travelled to Papua New Guinea, they found something quite different. Joining me now is the Four Corners reporter behind that story, Stephen Long. Good morning to you, Stephen. Good morning, Priyanka. Um, so let us know, why was Papua New Guinea chosen as the site to look into this carbon credit scheme um, for Four Corners? We had seen some concerns that NGOs had raised about a proposed carbon credit scheme, a, a red plus scheme they're known, reduced deforestation and degradation in Oro province. Read documents about that. I'd been doing a lot on the carbon market in Australia and it Grew from there. We spoke to Gary Juffer, the governor of the Oro province, about his concerns. And then we started looking at other projects and amassed a whole lot of documents. But it was clear that there was only so much you could do through a paper trail and a document trail from Australia. And uh, so we made the decision 
uh, a very expensive decision that the ABC <laughs> had to consider because, as as I think you know, travelling in Papua New Guinea is is not easy, mm. and uh, and we committed the resources to get on the ground where we could really have a look at uh, have a look at these projects. I just wanted to share, I guess, what is the breaking news, Priyanka, that mm. uh, that on the eve of our broadcast, just hours before it went to air, the global oversight body and register for the carbon credits from these projects announced that it was suspending the account of the main company we're investigating, Knight Inc., which operates in New Ireland, has a a big project in New Ireland, a proposed project in East New Britain. And they've suspended that account because Prior to us making them aware, they hadn't known about past company law violations by the American who runs it and a court judgment in 2012 which found that he had knowingly and or recklessly defrauded investors by issuing a series of false and misleading media reports which ramped up the stock price of the company he ran. So they've suspended the account whilst they whilst they probe that matter. And uh, so that was, an out, that was an outcome of the program, um, which raised a lot of issues about due diligence and governance of these, of these schemes. Wow, very interesting. So some breaking news yet, uh, there about the suspension of that, um, that carbon credit uh, company. Um, but what did you discover in Papua New Guinea? Why, why did you have these concerns or what did you see related to those concerns? When we went to New Ireland, where Knight Inc. is operating its 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 Red Plus to Pio project uh, on the southwestern side of the island, we went to the project area, and what we discovered was chainsaws and trucks and a lot of logging going on within the project area. And as you can imagine, a scheme that's clear and primary purpose is to prevent deforestation doesn't mix well with logging mm. so that was uh, that was disturbing uh, it was also undisclosed in any public documents that we could find we set out on the ground to find out why it was happening and and we we got an explanation from Nassan Audi in Wapi village who's a community leader, this is what he had to say. While waiting for night, the landowners, they get another company like a logging operation in our area. So now both of them are operating in our area. And what did I promise you? Uh, they promised us that uh, benefits like uh, schools, church, roads, health centres, they only pay 200 kina each. So your people decided to call in the loggers because there wasn't enough benefit coming from night? Yes, because of the delay. They did not fulfil some uh, promises. That was, uh, well, an excerpt from uh, your Four Corners report there, Stephen. Nassan Adi, a community um, member there in Papua New Guinea, New Island, um, so he was saying that they weren't seeing benefit coming from this night, from this carbon credit scheme. So, Well, not, not enough. Not um, enough. What okay. we kept on hearing, the phrase we kept on hearing was only 200 kina mm. and broken promises. And I, I didn't get the impression that the company hadn't paid what it was due. I got the impression that it had oversold what was coming and the time frame in which it was coming and 
So members of the community were disillusioned. And in, in an area beset by logging, that leads to the sorts of problems that, that we found. Mm. Um, yeah, but there was confusion about the benefits. So, so does that mean this, this, um, some of the, or well, this company that you looked into, Knight, is sort of playing bo- both sides, that they're promising to Australian businesses that, that logging won't take place in these forests for, for these carbon credits. And they're also promising to communities themselves that they'll lift them out through, through their scheme as well. They are. They're, that's the promise that they're making. It's a, it's a dual promise, but they haven't been able to carry everyone on the ground and we found a lot of dissatisfaction. Now, I think views are divided, and uh, but there was certainly a lot of dissatisfaction. There's also a court challenge going on by some members of a clan known as the Kamlapar clan, and we had a look at contracts that they signed which were clearly ambiguous and misleading on how much they were meant to get. Now, the company is talking about 56% of net revenue from the project, but not even some of its own people seem to understand that. Have a listen to Ezra Tolliger Jr., the chief executive of Knight's local subsidiary who we spoke to in East New Britain. Yes, I can justify that, Stephen. Um, the total sales was $10 million. 56% of that is equivalent to $6.3 million. $10 million Kina? It looks like more than that. Okay. It's whatever number is, all right. Just round it off to 10 million. 6.3 million is 56% of the people. That has gone now. And yet other documents say that you're only delivering 56% of the net? Of the gross. I'll, I'll, I'll correct you right there, brother. It's 56% of the gross. And that is in legal binding that the people... It's funny how some of your documentation and statements say otherwise. <laughs> that, that was you, Stephen, and, and um, Esram Tolliger, the CEO of Knight's local subsi- subsidiary, yeah. right? And, and if the chief executive of the local subsidiary doesn't know, then <laughs> I think it's a big stretch to think that people in villages uh, with limited, uh, limited language skills and education are going to be able to understand complex contracts. Yes, yes. But, I mean, who, who is to blame here about it? I mean, you said there was um, the authority, the global authority that has suspended this company. But how about local authorities, businesses in Australia? What, what do they have to say about it? Where does the blame lie? Well, businesses in Australia mainly signed up through a program uh, called Climate Active, which which accredits businesses as climate neutral, but it doesn't do, do its own due diligence. It relies on this in, international body, VERA. Now, it does have some fairly rigorous processes, but they take a long time. And so you can have logging going on in a project and people dissatisfied, and it can take quite a while, even years, for that to become apparent through a paper trail of documents posted on the website. And meanwhile, Companies in Australia who are buying into the credits are just looking at the marketing material. Mm. And that's one of the problems, the gap between the marketing and the gap between the reality on the ground. And obviously, it's very difficult to get to remote and isolated regions and and check this out. And, um, you know, there's a lot of concern 
um, from many, many politicians about the oversight, including from the Climate Change and Development Authority in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Governor Gary Jufa has been very passionate about this and worried about the prospect of carbon cowboys coming to PNG, because PN, partly because PNG actually needs the income, needs carbon credit schemes with integrity to develop national income. And have a listen to some of the concerns he raised. What's happening in New Ireland, it's happening in many other parts of PNG as well. And this is what I'm concerned about, that if carbon trade is a genuine option, then we don't want to contaminate our efforts in that space so that we maybe say, for instance, in the future, blacklisted because we allowed this to happen, whereby on the one hand, we are claiming to preserve forests, but on the other hand, you know, rampant logging is taking place. You know, that, that demeans our credibility. So some concern about the, the fallout there, Stephen. Uh, is, this, is this a PNG isolated situation, or do you have evidence that this might be happening in other places as well? There is a lot of concern about these schemes which operate in emerging and developing economies uh, fairly widespread across the globe, in Indonesia, in, in the Congo, in lots of areas, although... PNG has certainly been a pioneer in in this space. Um, clearly, there needs to be better governance of these schemes and and processes that actually provide genuinely more transparency. But one of the bigger issues. Priyanka is we've looked at that scheme that where there was logging taking place in a project where there's meant to be no logging. The other side of it is overstating the threats. And up in Oro province, a project that's proposed and hasn't been approved has actually been provisionally rejected because it was crazy, said that there was threats from cattle ranching where there's no cattle, threats from railways where there's no railways. But it was overstating the threats of logging in an area that was far too steep for a lot of the terrain to be logged. If you have carbon credits issued from projects like that, and there's evidence that may have happened overseas, then you've got companies that are polluting, thinking they're buying offsets for their pollution that aren't real. And the danger is that makes climate change even worse, which is obviously a disaster for nations under threat from climate change in the Pacific. Mm, yes, I guess the grand irony here is that this scheme is supposed to help climate change or, or um, you know, stop stop the impacts, but might be doing the opposite. Um, now, uh, Stephen, your show, it's called Carbon Colonialism, um, the Four Corners Report, airs tonight in the Pacific. What, what do you hope will, will come out of the, the report? What do you think needs to change in the carbon credit market? I think there needs to be more transparency, better oversight, and more immediate disclosure of what's going on. And also there need to be firm rules. Now, I know Papua New Guinea is working on this, but there would need to be really, really solid rules to stop exploitation of local people because the risk is that this becomes another resources play of the kind we've seen before with mining and logging where local people, there's a power imbalance and they end up getting a raw deal. That's what we don't want to see. So there needs to be firm legislation and controls around this and better governance. Yes, interesting stuff. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time this morning on Pacific Beat. You're very welcome.
That was Stephen Long. And as I mentioned, you can catch that ABC Four Corners report that um, that he covered. Uh, it is airing tonight on ABC Australia, 8.15pm PNG time to be exact. It's called Carbon Colonialism. You can also find it, uh, the online version, the digital version of that story on the ABC website right now. You can search for Carbon Colonialism or just head on to the website. You should find it fairly easily there. Very interesting stuff. And I know... You know, these carbon credit schemes are popping out in a few places. I've seen some in Fiji and Solomon Islands. If you live around those areas, do you have any concerns after listening to this um, report that Stephen was outlining? Maybe after you see the report tonight, do get in touch with us at ABC Pacific. We'd love to hear your thoughts, that sort of balancing act going on between these carbon credit schemes and making sure they actually make a difference when it comes to climate change. I'll be back at same time tomorrow on Wednesday. Until then, have a lovely day.